Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Madrid. Macrocytic angiopathies are serious disease entities that can be difficult to identify and even more difficult to manage. However, with effective new therapies emerging, the outlook for those who suffer from them is increasingly optimistic. Elia Zule is a professor of medicine at Paris University, head of critical care at St. Louis Hospital in Paris, and a board member of the French National Reference Centre for Thrombotic Microangiopathies. In addition, he is president-elect of the ESICM. Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Well, good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are, or good evening, maybe. Ellie, in basic terms, what is the pathology that's occurring in thrombotic microcytic angiopathy? Well, this is a, a condition that we see often. The rare diseases are still rare, but the syndrome of thrombotic microangiopathy is very easy to define. It's a conception thrombocytopenia, a mechanical hemolytic anemia, and it is mechanical because the, 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 the factor that leads to hemolysis is not immune. So the DTA, the DAT, the Coombs test is negative. And you can see on the blood smear schistocytes that are broken red cells. Uh, and that is the signature of a uh, uh, hemolytic, uh, mechanical hemolytic anemia. And of course, uh, I am an ICU specialist. Uh, and in most of the cases, you have organ dysfunction, either at a clinical level, when it's very severe, but sometimes only at a biological level. What's happening at the capillary level or the blood vessel level in terms of the pathology? It is a microvascular injury. It's a thrombosis. And despite the deep thrombocytopenia that we can see in TMA syndromes, it's not a disease that is going to lead to bleeding. It is a thrombotic disease. When patients die, unfortunately, they die from myocardial infarction, they die, they die from stroke, or they die from ischemia of other organs. So at a, a, a capillary level, it's really a microvascular injury that comes from a thrombosis. And of course, there is an ischemia after the thrombosis. And this is how organ dysfunction is uh, created. Ellie, this is almost the common pathway of a number of different pathologies. Uh, can you tell us about what conditions this syndrome is seen in? Yeah, that, that's a, a very important question. So a TMA syndrome, as we've seen, is frequent. And in uh, in the ICU, we can consider that it's not something so rare. Of course, what is rare is the thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura, which incidence is one per 600,000, 1 million people, or the atypical hemolytic and uremic syndrome that is also a rare condition. But a TMA syndrome is far more frequent. For example, if you have a patient coming from a malignant hypertension, hypertension, he can present or she can present with a TMA syndrome. If you have a patient coming with malaria, he can come with a TMA syndrome, etc., etc. So we usually make a first difference, and this is mostly because of the urgency to, to treat the patients, um, between TTP and HUS. TTP is a very uh, uh, single entity because it has a biological signature. TTP is a disease where Adam's 13, that is a metalloproteinase, is lacking. It is either lacking for autoimmune reasons, 
or lacking for congenital reasons. But we, as adult specialists, uh, we very rarely see uh, uh Schulman syndrome, which is the congenital form of TTP. We see it when uh, in maybe in the obstetrical setting where there is a, a, a fatal loss, and in that case is very frequent. But otherwise. It's very rare in adults. Uh, it's very, very rare in adults. It's rare in, in children and even very, very rare in adults. Otherwise, in adults, what we have is an acquired immune TTP, thrombotic thrombocytic purpura, where ADAMS13 is lacking. So that um, what is ADAMS13 is the von Wilbrand factor cleaving protease. So the, the Wilbrand factor remains very long and unusually long because we need the sizer Adam's 13 plays like a sizer to shorten Wilbrand factor and make it rheologically acceptable. If we miss, if we lack Adam's 13, we are going to have an unusually large Wilbrand factor and it's going to aggregate the platelet and cause microvascular thrombosis. So this disease is very easy to identify because we are able to measure Adam's 13 activities. There are several ways to measure it. Uh, and from a lab point of view, there are standards. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to enter into that. But when Adam's 13 is undetectable, this is the signature for TTP. We as adult uh, uh, physicians, we know that this is a therapeutic emergency because we need to provide huge amounts of functional Adam's 13 for the patient's recover and for having uh, for reducing the microvascular injury and healing the micro the microcirculation, reducing organ dysfunction. It's magic. It's not immediate, but it's very quick. And we know that when patients come to the ICU with um, uh, neurological uh, uh, injury, cardiac injury or kidney injury, but also other organ injury can be seen. We know that these patients, when they are treated appropriately, and we will speak about the treatment later, they are really recovering very fast when they receive the standard of care. Of course, some of the patients will present with a refractory or an unresponsive disease. So that was TTP with its biological signature. When ADAMS13 is, undetect is detectable, so it's not a TTP, and then we enter into the HUS syndromes. And here you have different type of HUS. I would separate them into three different categories. Of course, it could be five, but let's be simple today. One is the typical HUS. Uh, we, we say typical because this is the one that we see in preschool children with bloody diarrhea and uh, uh, um, uh, uh, a mechanism that involves the toxin of uh, uh, an E. coli. And this uh, Shiga toxin, because it mimics the toxin of Shigella, this is what we call it uh, Shiga toxin. Well, by the way, in France, we also call it Verotoxin because the person in the lab that identified was named Veronique. So this is why we, we call it uh, uh, Verotoxin. Well, by the way, so this toxin also injured um, injures the, 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 the system and we have a hemolytic and uremic syndrome. When there is no bloody diarrhea and we are in adults, so this is two reasons why it is atypical. Atypical because there is no bloody diarrhea and atypical because we are in adults. 
But we don't call that anymore atypical HUS, atypical uremic, uh, hemolytic and uremic syndrome, because we know we know now that uh, the complement system is really involved into that. Um, and for you to know, we we did two cartoons to explain that to the medical doctors and to the patients. Uh, so these cartoons are available. So it's very easy to understand that the complement system is so activated that uh, the MAC is, is going in the C3 and the, uh, the, the alternate pathway and the MAC are going to be activated and we are going to have an injury. There is something that is misleading. We call that a hemolytic and uremic syndrome. And, you know, the, the hallmark of it uh, is acute kidney injury. But this is not so true. We know that some patients have cardiac injury and some patients have neurological injury. And unfortunately, these patients with atypical HUS uh, are even uh, sickest because um, not only the disease can be very sick and the patients can be critically ill, but also as opposed to TTP, where outcomes are usually very, very good, we can have a grim outcomes in patients with HUS. Um, and then if it's not the typical and not the atypical, we have what we call the secondary TMA that are either associated with another condition. It can be cancer, it can be transplantation, it can be uh, 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 pregnancy, it can be autoimmune disease, etc. It can be a drug. And, uh, and this is a big group where we could, you know, even create separations there. But this is just for the sake of simplicity that uh, I created this, uh, this third group. How does the disease present clinically? You mentioned a number of different potential syndromes, but what are the most common? Yeah, and uh, and your, your question is very important because we are committed to make a clinical evaluation so thoroughly that we are able to speak about it and to repeat the clinical examination to see how it responds to treatment. Just a word of history. The disease was uh, uh, discovered by um, uh, a pathologist uh, that was uh, looking at an autopsy uh, uh, findings in a young girl uh, dying from TTP. And this guy was called Eli Moskowitz. Um, and he found a, a, a thrombotic a thrombosis. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, mostly uh, affecting the brain, but not only, it was a systemic thrombosis. So he described something, and we used to call that a neurologic syndrome. So I would say that uh, uh, a clinical examination can be either easy when the patients are very sick um, or very complicated when either the patient have a mild disease or where there is an intrication with an underlying autoimmune disease, which is not so rare in TTP. So clinical examination must, you know, um, I would say, um, uh, take back all your, your training of internal medicine. We need to look at the neurological system. Headaches uh, is the most uh, insidious sign, but we need to look at it. Um, uh, uh, amnesia, or of course, also, but we can have a pyramidal syndrome and we can have other uh, stroke-like syndromes. Uh, recently, we published a paper where we were able to report and to describe different patterns of neurological injury at the, 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 the onset of TTP, and we correlated this to long-term outcomes. And there's a correlation. The patient can come for scissors, and even for status epilepticus, he or she can come from coma. So it can be very, uh, very uh, a certain number of clinical signs. Um, 
For a cardiac injury, we usually define it by three signs. One is chest pain. Two is ECG abnormalities that are in the in the spectrum of MI. And three is a, a troponin. Why troponin? It's not clinical, it's biological. But troponin has so much impact on outcomes uh, that we need to really incorporate it into our, uh, um, uh, our initial evaluation. More than that, today we add routine echocardiography to these patients to detect um, underlying cardiac injury. It's very important because what we fear the most in patients with TTP is cardiac arrest. And unfortunately, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. And we need to be aware of this risk. This is why almost all the patients are in the ICU. Is it too much? Maybe. But, you know, they're not going to live in the ICU. They're going to stay for a short time. And now with the new drugs, they are staying less and less. But they are in the ICU. Three is the acute kidney injury. For a very long time, we, we were quite sure that it was the hallmark of HUS and not existent in TTP. But it's not true. Uh, a recent paper from Professor Zafrani from my group uh, showed that not only more than half the patient had an acute kidney injury, you know, with the new operational definition of AKI, definitions of AKI, but also that renal recovery was not the rule. And some patients also had chronic kidney injury after them. I would also be very careful with uh, the pancreas, uh, and there are some uh, 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 digestive involvement in patients uh, with TMAs. Uh, and in patients with HUS, there, are, there is a huge uh, literature on skin involvement, and skin biopsies can also sometimes be helpful uh, for, for some patients. Um, so, Lee, one of the key um, elements of your presentation in Madrid was talking about the uh, reasons that people miss the diagnosis. When should we be thinking about this diagnosis and what are the key reasons that it gets missed? I would say that by nature, we sometimes miss the diagnosis of rare disease because what makes us aware and what raises awareness for disease is experience. So I would say that making it very simple and looking at the patient and the biological uh, uh, data we, we need to click when something happens. What makes the diagnostic missing is when the lab doesn't uh, detect schistocytes. And this is either because the machine is not so sensitive or because it was not requested. So I would say that when we have a hemolysis, uh, we need to approach it using not only the autoimmune aspect, and we know to go to the DAT and to the Coombs test, but we know also to be aware to detect whether the hemolysis is mechanical with schistocytes. And when we ask for schistocytes, and it's much easier for the lab person to detect them. The other thing is that there are sometimes features in TTP that are not routine. For example, you can have a TTP with a positive DAT either because there is an underlying lupus or autoimmune disease, or because uh, if, if it's a HUS, you can have an infectious HUS where the COMS is, is positive, et cetera, et cetera. There are many other reasons. So people would be would find this misleading and would not consider the diagnosis, uh, the diagnosis of TMA and TTP because of the positive DAT. And three, I would say, Many of these patients, because of the 
pseudo MI or pseudo stroke presentation, go to the neuro or to the cardio uh, specialist um, that are, you know, they are very good to detect it. We work with them and we work together, but you know, they have even less experience than others. So I would see, I would say that um, raising awareness should apply to everyone, to ED, ICU specialists and internists and hematologists and nephrologists, but also to a stroke specialist and myocardial infarct specialists. Ellie, what are the key uh, therapeutic options that are available for TMA? Well, it depends on where we are. For TTP, it's very much standardized. The therapeutic targets in TTP are quite easy. We need to replace the lacking ADAMS13. We need to control the autoimmune disease because it's an immune-acquired TTP. So we need to 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 really control everything that is uh, uh, autoimmune, and we need to reduce the antibodies against Adams thirteen. Um, and then we need to protect the patients. So we need to reduce the adhesion between Vinbrun factor and platelets. Saying that, we have to provide Adams thirteen for now. We can only do it using plasma, and huge amounts of plasma of function, include functional ADAMS13 and are going to really uh, uh, accelerate uh, recovery. Recombinant ADAMS30 is being evaluated in trials. Uh, is uh, of course it's uh, it's going to be also the standard in patients with Upshoshulman syndrome because they don't have any antibodies against ADAMS13, but it's also evaluated in immune acquired TTP, and we are very much looking forward to the results of these very very important trials. So as recombinant ADAMS13 is not yet available, we use um, plasma exchange. Um, this is the standard of care, and we do one and a half blood mass, so 60 milliliter per kilo of plasma, pure plasma, plasma exchange uh, every day until the number of platelets goes beyond 50,000. Regarding autoimmune, uh, the, the control of uh, providing immunosuppressive drugs, uh, so we have different level of evidence. The two drugs that we provide have no a level of evidence because there are no randomized controlled trials that have that have assessed effectiveness of steroids versus placebo or rituximab versus placebo. But the two drugs are very uh, effective. Um, there is an Italian trial that has controlled low versus high doses of uh, steroids and shows that high doses do better, so steroids are effective. Um, and there are very very much a lot, a lot of data on rituximab. What we do now is we protect uh, early and long-term effects. So we do early at day one steroids, one milligram per kilo and per day, usually for 21 days, but some do it for a shorter time, some do it for a longer time, and for you to know, some don't do it. And rituximab uh, that we do uh, 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 at day one, so day one, day three, and then of, uh, day eight and day 15 for injections, uh, but sometimes when Adam's, uh, when the, the antibodies are not detectable and the B cells have completely disappeared, we don't do the fourth in the injection of rituximab. And uh, this protects the patient so that now 
we we barely see any uh, relapse, any flare-up, or any uh, troubles in recovery. And then there's a drug that inhibits the adhesion between platelets and ribbon factor. This drug is the caplacizumab, um, and uh, this drug is provided now to every patient with TTP, but we know that we could maybe select this drug for the sickest patients, but there is no evidence for that yet, um, or maybe give it for a shorter time period, shortest time period, but there is no evidence for that, or maybe give caplacizumab and spare plasma and plasma exchange, but there is no evidence for that. I'm just providing what is in the pipeline in terms of clinical research. This was CTP. For typical HUS, the treatment is symptomatic treatment, and when the renal replacement therapy is required, we do dialysis, uh, and uh, usually uh, the patients recover, but the recovery is not 100%, uh, and we know that the neurological injury is sickest in HUS than in TTP, so we wait, and we are usually having good results, but it can take a very long time. For these patients, every... Uh, Every uh, prognostic indicator that we are used to in the ICU don't apply anymore. We usually have to wait and those patients can have, can have very, very good long-time recovery. And for atypical HUS, so we know that there's a dysregulation of the complement system with the alternate pathway. So what we do is that we are seeking to block the complement system uh, at a level so that the 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 uh, the membrane is not going to be injured. So what we provide and it's approved for that is C5 blockade uh, using for now eculizumab, but there are other drugs that are being developed and other um, uh, uh, molecules also that are being developed. Uh, and it's uh, it's very effective and there are a lot of data. So the patient are going to have a control of the hemolysis and increase in platelets. And then late after uh, renal uh, stability and then renal recovery. Eculizumab is given for atypical HUS, which is a complement dysregulated HUS. There is no specific treatment for typical HUS. And caplacizumab is given for TTP in addition to plasma for now and uh, immunosuppressive drugs. Ellie, there's a school of thought that some patients with TTP can be managed without plasma exchange. What sort of patients could this apply to, and is there evidence to support that? Well, Todd, I must be honest. I'm a very, very, very precocious person, and I don't run risk for my patients. At least as an ICU specialist, I don't see those patients with zero organ dysfunction in TTP. So my uh, until now, we always have performed the plasma exchange in patients with TTP. Let me be honest, uh, uh, I'm a, a mature ICU specialist. I've seen too much patients either dying of having a very prolonged and protracted course because of inappropriate initial treatment. Um, so I have never managed a TTP patients without plasma exchange. But... With a very appropriate treatment uh, and with the advent of caplacizumab, the number of plasma exchange has been reduced from 10 to 15 to 4 to 6. And I must say that today, five-pack sessions uh, is the standard. 
So it has really, really changed. And uh, the profile, we, we can see organ recovery quite fast, and we are very happy about it. Should we deprive the patients from any plasma? For me, the answer is it's too early. Should we shorten a little bit more and maybe do less plasma exchange? Maybe, but I would like to see proper investigations showing that it is safe in a very broad uh, population. Myself, as an ICU specialist, I don't recommend that for now, today, September 12, 2022. Ellie, how do you monitor the progress of the patient uh, with TTP when you're implementing these different therapies? Is platelet count the only measure or are there other ways of monitoring their progress? Yeah, there are, there are, this is a very good question. I think that as clinicians, we know we know clinically how patients evolve. But sometimes it's difficult because everything doesn't go the same way. And the other thing is some patients are intubated in the ICU and monitoring things clinically is not so easy. So I would say that we are focused on platelet count. I'm not sure that we should, that we are wrong because this is very reliable. Because clinical signs disappear quite early, but when platelet count remains low, it says that the disease is still very active. Or sometimes the signs persist, but platelet count increases, and you need to seek for another reason for keeping the signs. Let me give you two examples if I have time for that. If you have a 50-year-old man who is a smoker and have other CV risks, cardiovascular risks, and he has or she has a, a, a TTP, you can consider the, the diagnosis of microvascular injury, provide aspirin, do the plasma exchange and the rest. But when you keep signs of cardiac suffering, we really need to consider whether the patient would need an angioplasty. There is a very nice paper that has provided evidence for that. So not only cardiovascular injury is a risk factor for mortality in patients with TTP, but also when you have a risk, a cardiovascular risk, cholesterol, cigarette, et cetera, diabetes, et cetera, you also have a highest prevalence of cardiac uh, signs and cardiac suffering in patients with TTP. So you can have the two and we need to be very careful. This is exactly the same for stroke. You, you, we, we don't do any uh, angioplasty or any fibrinolysis in stroke uh, when there's a TTP, but we might also consider it uh, in patients who are recovering from TTP, but then remaining uh, very, very neurological. So we, we should work with the neurologist on what we can do quite early in uh, the onset of the disease, but we need to work together. And uh, the, the other thing uh, uh, regarding treatments uh, is that we need to be very much aware that uh, in TTP, half the patients have what we call uh, uh, idiopathic TTP, where there is no disease, underlying disease, but half have an active autoimmune disease. And if you really want to uh, have a fast recovery, you need also to target the lupus or the, the, the other systemic disease. Ellie, one of the other great conundrums of managing TTP is what to do about a patient who's bleeding who has a low platelet count. How do you manage that in practice? Well, this is a, a very important question, a very, very important one. One is by nature, 
without any drug, any treatment. Uh, TTP is a thrombotic disease. But some of the patients bleed, and some of the patients have uh, very deep uh, coagulation disturbances. So uh, in TMA syndromes, TTP are not the ones that are bleeding the most, but some secondary TMAs uh, with, for example, uh, cancer involvement in the marrow or, or any uh, uh, very uh, uh, disseminated cancer, they have a DIC syndrome, and uh, these patients bleed more than others. But you said TTP, so let's go back to TTP. So in TTP, we, we know that it's a thrombotic disease, but uh, the, some of the patients might bleed, and if they have severe bleeding, like, for example, SCNS bleeding or uh, digestive bleeding, and we need to intervene, what we do is that we, we provide platelet, something we never do in TTP, because providing platelet is giving the fuel to the disease. So you are going to really increase thrombosis. Um, but when there is a bleeding, you don't have any, any, any choice. So what you do is that you do two pack sessions the same day, to provide the patients with more and more uh, uh, functional ADAMS-13. So you will give platelet, but at the same time, you inhibit uh, the, 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 the adhesion uh, by providing functional ADAMS-13 and also uh, uh, um, uh, other treatments. The other thing is that we used to give, when patients are beyond 50,000 platelet, we are used to give them uh, aspirin and used to have a, 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 a DVT prophylaxis using a low molecular weight heparins. Of course, when there's a bleeding, you're going to stop that uh, and you're going to monitor more closely uh, everything related to hemostasis. One last very, very important thing. Caplacizumab provides the patients with a kind of experimental uh, Wilbrand disease because you inhibit uh, the, the adhesion between platelets and Wilbrand factor. So, of course, caplacizumab is contraindicated when there's a severe bleeding. Of course, when there's a very minor bleeding, you're going to keep the treatment. It's so effective that when it's a very minor, you keep and you pay attention to that. But when it's a major bleeding, you stop caplacizumab. And if a patient bleeds, you don't start caplacizumab. It is a contraindication to, to uh, 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 caplacizumab, of course. The flip side of that coin, Nelly, is uh, for patients who develop macrovascular clots, whether that be arterial or venous. Um, in the context of somebody who is thrombocytopenic, clinicians are often faced with the conundrum of trying to work out what to do about anticoagulating them. Do you have any advice for them in this situation? I would, I would not give any recipe my experience that it happens. It happens much more frequently than when we think, and, and we don't have a, a recipe that applies to everyone. We really manage uh, individually every case um, based on uh, the previous medical history, whether the anticoagulants have been provided for a long time, for example, for uh, RTR fibrillation. We, we look at the hemostatic data and we try to make correction when there is a, a, a vitamin K uh, deficiency, etc. So we really look at the patient. Um, and then we balance the risk um, of depriving the patients of a very effective treatment with the risk of bleeding and going into instrumental procedures that have themselves their morbidity. So I would say that every case is a different case. It happened that we provided the patients with a, a coagulant factor because they bled uh, with caplacizumab. It happened that we didn't start caplacizumab because the patients were bleeding. It happened that we kept everything you know, for one, two days, but we're very uh, uh, much careful and monitor the patients. Uh, 
these patients have to be in uh, somewhere around an ICU intermediate care unit or where you want, uh, but they, they need to be, you know, like the milk on the fire. We really need to be very careful. Finally, Ali, what is the um, what are the clinical outcomes for critically ill patients who are suffering from a microangiopathy? Well, we are lucky because when I was a resident, I saw so many patients dying from TTP that, uh, you know, uh, uh, we are very lucky to see that not only understanding the disease, finding key targets, improving therapeutic targets, having developing drugs, and it's going and going with uh, recombinant ADAMS-13, et cetera, and all the things that are going, that we have been so lucky that our hope, our crazy hope would be that we target zero death um, in TTP. Zero is never zero. We are in medicine and in the ICU. So, and there is not only death, there is also organ recovery, etc. So I would say that um, there are three conditions where we need to be very careful. One is delayed management. When there is an initial delay in management, there is a protracted course and we are going to pay it into time to treatment. And this is very important. Two is uh, when there is an initial cardiac arrest or a very severe organ injury. Please fight, fight, fight. We have, you know, we have patients who are today neurologically intact and have done 45 minutes of cardiac arrest, went on ECMO and survived with no neurological sequels. So fight, fight fight. Uh, this is a really a reversible disease uh, and every organ can be reversible. We even have a patient that has been then kidney transplanted and, uh, and, and she's uh, very, very well today. The third thing is uh, elderly patients. Um, we usually consider elderly patients as uh, uh, different. And this is true because for the same injury, they develop more organ dysfunction. But uh, caplacizumab also can be given to elderly patients because it, it fastens recovery. It's very effective, even if it where well, some data provide more bleeding in this age group. Um, it needs to be uh, confirmed, but this is a, a theory that we have. So we are careful, but we, we still give it to them. And the last thing is... Uh, when we've seen patients with myocardial infarction, with stroke, with uh, severe organ damage, uh, we've seen these patients and they really recovered. So what we know for septic shock, RDS, and the general ICU patient and the multiple organ dysfunction is very different in TTP because we know that these patients can really recover and recover totally. So I would, I would say that in this patient population, fight, 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 uh, you can get the patient recover, fully recovered. Ellie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast Thank today. You. It's been an extraordinary uh, exploration of this topic and we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Vossler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our podcast interviews as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.